you don't realize what you actually have in you to succeed in doing those things until you go to do them. And what I hadn't realized was how much of this authentic leadership style that I espouse today, if you need to put a brand on it, came from the world that I grew up in. Being real and being transparent and being honest and being one of the people and having done the job that these people do and never being willing to ask somebody to do something that you wouldn't do yourself, that's at the bottom of all the things that I learned growing up in this business. And when it came time for me to define that for myself, it all just came out. I didn't I didn't go read a bunch of leadership books. I didn't try to find the style that defines me. We just went. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 3% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Lead the Team. I've got a treat in store for you today with Dave Broering, who is the president of Integrated Logistics Solutions over at NFI. Dave leads the freight brokerage intermodal global freight forwarding and four PL services. With his team, he has fostered rapid growth across all four business units via both organic growth and acquisitions. NFI is one of the largest privately held 3PLs in the U.S., focusing on warehousing services, dedicated trucking, drayage, and transloading services, along with the integrated logistic services to the market. He spent his entire professional career, that's over 25 years of experience in the logistics industry, and he's developed an expertise in creating fast-growing and efficient operations focused on world-class account management and execution of services. Dave began his career in logistics with American Backhaulers, a privately held 3PL that was subsequently acquired by C.H. Robinson just two years into his career. And staying on with C.H. Robinson for 12 more years, Dave found a blend of technological focus and operational execution as the key to success inside this large publicly held 3PL. Dave and his wife, Jen, and their daughters, Nora and Astor, reside in the Philly suburbs in South Jersey and love to spend their time with their many dogs. And I just got a 12-week-old puppy at the house, and boy, is it crazy. If they've got many, I bet that has been a fun experience. <laughs> and also, I thought it was pretty cool their daughters are into competitive equestrian endeavors. My daughter is into horses. Maybe we'll dig into that, too. But in the meantime, Dave, welcome to Lead the Team, sir. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me on. So how many dogs are we talking about? Well, we actually only have one um, okay. right now, but we have a puppy coming in four weeks, three weeks. Um, but we had a tough summer. We had three, all the same breed called Leon Burger, okay. um, which is a big fuzzy combination. Some crazy German scientist combined a Newfoundland, a St. Bernard, and a Pyrenees together back 300 years ago and made this 150-pound fluff balls that are the sweetest best things on the planet oh uh, and unfortunately we lost two within three weeks this summer so oh, man sorry uh, to hear that it's yeah 
It's so hard when you lose a pet, uh, become part of the family. And uh, yeah, no, I know that's tough. And it's Leon Burger is the breed that uh, Leon Burger. Yeah, Leon, Leon Burger. 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 Okay. Yeah. And they just, uh, I think AKC registered in the last 15 years. They do show and like you see them in like the national dog show and stuff like that. We like them. And ironically, I mean, funnily, I, I met them through a trucking company. Uh, a trucker came to my house to pick up a car that I had sold. And a couple was riding along with two of them in their truck with them and asked if we could, they could use our yard to let their dogs out. And we had two dogs and a dog run at the time, a Great Dane and a Doberman. And we said, what better than that? We've got a, a big backyard. Come bring them in the back and they can rumble. And they rolled two Leon burgers out of this truck and we fell in love. And uh, wow. so we've been, we've been, and we are getting a new Leon burger puppy here on December 16th. And wow. And uh, looking forward to maybe getting a, a third one next summer. So that, that is a very, that's a very cool story. And I'm just curious, is this, is this sort of the way you live your life or sort of looking for inspiration as you go along and, and, uh, you know, and, I, and I take action on it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a, if you want to think of parables that I kind of live by, I'm, uh, I'm somebody who's constantly seeking information constantly looking to learn, never satisfied with status quo for both what I know and what other, other things that are going on. And, you know, my wife and I have been spending a lot of time doing soul searching on what dog breeds were good for our life with young kids. And, you know, we kept seeing this breed come up, but we didn't know anything about it. So we, we went and figured out a way to learn about it and then just stumbled blindly into it. I would like to say, I think that some of my life has just been predicated on being in the right place at the right time. Hmm. All right. Wow. That's a heck of a tee up right there. <laughs> so what are some examples of, uh, being at the right place at the right time. Well, I mean, you know, uh, as we were talking a little bit ahead of this, uh, I got the perfect degree for logistics and English literature uh, <laughs> from the University of Dayton. Uh, grew up in Dayton, Ohio. What, while I was in college, my parents moved to Chicago. My father worked for Arthur Anderson. And mm. so having zero idea what I was going to do with my life because I got an English degree and that requires me to go do something else, either getting a degree or go you know, sell something. I went back to my parents' place and took a job waiting tables, trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do with my life. Mm -hmm. And in the process of doing that, I was, I love golfing. I was playing golf in the mornings. I was waiting tables at night. One of my father's friends who was a consultant did HR services, expansion work, help companies that were growing do things. He asked if he could jump and tag along with me playing golf a couple of times a week because he knew that I was playing a lot and he had flexible schedule. So we did. We played a bunch of stuff together um, during the, the course of the whole summer. We must have played 10, 15 times. Well, out of nowhere, he shows up in my section at the restaurant I was waiting tables at in November and says, I've got this great company. You got to give me your resume so I can introduce you to them. It's mm. it's the these people hire people just like you every day in the logistics field. And I was like, no idea what he was even talking about. Like, before the pandemic, nobody knew what logistics was, much less, you know, 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and that turned out that the interview was uh, mid-late December of 1997. I was hired on the spot. I started in that job January 12th, 1998. And mm. 25 years later, almost exactly, I am still in this industry and have just fallen in love with it. And mm. I go back to that moment and my friend Andy, who, by the way, will be receiving a bottle of champagne I'm spoiling the surprise on the on the 12th, he and his wife, because I, I owe him tremendously for being thoughtful and considering where I might fit. He knew I would mm. fit 
with the culture of the organization and the style and mentality of people they were trying to hire. It wasn't so much that I was just a young person and they were trying to hire young people. It was that I was a young person who had this ability and skill that he saw in me that I didn't even know I had, which was really to be this very account management and sales focused individual. Uh, and I don't know that he necessarily believed in, and saw me as a future leader of these organizations, but he definitely saw me fitting with this group and put me there for that reason. Wow. So let's, so let's unpack that. So it is being at the right pl- place at the right time, but there's a, seems like a lot of decisions you made in leading up to that moment that, that perhaps made that happen. Uh, like, I don't know, golf, being open to meeting people networking. at work, networking. Yep. Uh, and, and you were, how old were you at the time? You were in your. It was 22. 22. Yeah. So, wow. So, and is be yeah, being open to that. Um, yeah. And it's, it's kind of like that idea of making your own luck by, by being out there. It's a heck of a lot uh, harder to make your own luck if you're home, uh, you know, watching TV, nothing wrong watching a little TV now and then, but you know, or, but you're kind of out there working, you know, you're hustling and, and I mean, working in a restaurant is hustle. And then also, you know, being out there and meeting new people. It sounds like it's a great way. How, how do you perceive that? Well, what I would say is there are three things that I learned from it that I continue to make the core of who I am today. Mm-hmm. One networking. Uh, my wife accuses me of collecting people for a living. Um, I love I love meeting people. I love talking to people. I love understanding their experiences. Uh, the, there's always something to learn from any person you interact with. It doesn't matter what job they're in. It doesn't matter what industry. And it doesn't matter what country they're from. There's something to learn from. Two is, is, is um, thought, thoughtful risk-taking, right? So taking this job downtown, being willing to commute, 45 minutes to an hour plus each way for a role in an industry that I had no no knowledge of whatsoever was absolutely paramount to me being able to succeed in this role. Because mm-hmm. if I was a conservative person who was uncomfortable with change, I would not have been considering a role in the city nearly 45 miles away from, from where I was. And then the third is making connections. And so this is something that I've done my entire professional career And it's almost like paying it forward in some respects, because Andy, who saw something in me and recognized that hustle that I have at the waiting tables and how that would translate over to becoming a freight broker, and that I I was a smart person that you really desired to continue to learn, and that it was somewhat entrepreneurial in its ability to kind of drive your own day and make your own day, he Mm -hmm. recognized that and connected me. And I have since, I would love to say that I'm responsible for hundreds of other people finding opportunities in this world by me connecting them with people that are looking out there looking for talent and just recognizing these right fits or mentalities or cultures or just the things that they espouse. And I've tried so hard to pay that forward every day since. And by the way, it's reaped karmic dividends on my career. Hmm. Wow. So a lot of great leadership insights here, but also just really positive professional success ideas for, for people to really be digesting right now. And I'm curious. So you've been at this for a while, over two decades, collecting people, uh, connecting, collecting, connecting, uh, 
how the heck do you keep up with everybody? Because we're talking, well, I, and I'm always, I, and by the way, I enjoy a lot of these things too. So I'm really, really resonates with me, but you're constantly meeting new people. Yeah. What, one, it, I will say that it is, um, it's the, probably the biggest challenge of my schedule is how do you stay connected with the people that matter? But I'll tell you one little trick is I've never had, I've only ever had one cell phone number. So mm. it's really easy for people to find me. Nice. Now it's a little bit less valuable in the days of LinkedIn ubiquity and, you know, LinkedIn's a lot easier to discover and connect with people again or reconnect after a long time. Uh, but what I would say is really, it's just about, it's about being intentional. And so like I, I commute 20, 25 minutes each way every day. And I'm not in the office every day. I do travel a lot for work, but when I'm driving, I call people. Mm. I, I could sit there mindlessly listening to the radio or, or whatever, or trying to uh, really badly text while driving, which got the most dangerous thing ever. Um, but I call people. I, I've always loved being on the phone from the day I started my first job. That job and freight brokering was being on the phone all day, every day. That If you were good at your job, you were on your phone eight, nine hours a day. And mm -hmm. so I just, I continue to stay connected with those people via phone calls, via text messages. Obviously, texting has made it a lot easier to do that. And then, you know, 30-minute check-ins. Because in the end, like, time is precious. And if you can give people 30 minutes of time to catch up on something, and I know people to this day and look, we all love to deify leaders. People love to put leaders up on a pedestal and say that they're amazing people and they're better than other people because they've done X or they've done Y. But the truth of the matter is that at the bottom of it, we're all very similarly charging after the same things. It's just a matter of what we're responsible for. So like where a person is in their life versus I am should not dictate whether I give them time or not. It's just a matter of, is there going to be a meaningful conversation that comes from it? And Will it help them or will it help me or will it help us? Okay. So, so you pretty much led right into what I was going to ask about is, and we're getting a little bit granular here, but I think it's, I think it's really helpful for, for people to understand how does a president of a, of a large organization prioritize who you're going to communicate with? Because it's, you could be contacting people from, from years ago or urgent addressing urgent things maybe there's urgent things i think about um sort of stephen covey and the urgent versus the important and you have that time in your day let's say uh your 20 minute commute what's your thought process about okay i'm entering the car my my habit is to is to contact at least one person during that time period what's your thought process about who you're going to reach out to that day you know it just depends uh i what I would say is I think a couple of key factors. So how do I prioritize? That one is pretty straightforward. Obviously, the acting existing business first is the most important. Where I spend a ton of my time and my day-to-day -day work is, is managing leading people. And, and so with 550 people in our organization, you know, we were we were nine people when I started 10 years ago. We're now 550 people. I had two tiers of management. I now have five tiers of management. Like managing through that, trying to create structure without creating structure for the sake of creating structure, could create valuable structure that helps develop people, helps keep people going. That takes the priority. And so mm -hmm. if it's a mm -hmm. internal people call, that it makes my calendar no matter what. I think the biggest thing is that I'm willing to move work 
that's in my day that isn't like time sensitive out of the core of my day to have a conversation, knowing that that time is important or asking the people who are asking for my time to spend some time with me when I am available, which may be 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night or maybe a weekend. Because in the end, part of me and what makes me me is I work a lot of hours and it's not a badge of honor for me. I love my job and I have fun doing what I'm doing. So I don't struggle to do work on a Saturday. I don't struggle to have an hour-long conversation with somebody about a career path or about what organization they might want to consider joining or about what data analytics could mean to their business. These things that people might reach out to me for, or by the way, I reach out to my mentors for that time as well, because it's not Mm -hmm. just one-way street with people coming to me. It's me going to my my mentor network because I have a big group of them that I'm relying on for insight and things that I'm doing. Because look, every day is a new challenge and I don't have all the answers to every question. I know a lot of people think that I do, but the truth of the matter is it takes a lot of effort collectively from your world to continue to move a business forward at the pace that things. Yeah. A big issue in the supply chain industry when things need to move immediately oftentimes, and do you have to call a president to figure out if you need to do it or not? (laughs) If you have to do that, you're not building a very sustainable career for yourself. And it's just going to be an escalation nightmare all the time. And so we're empowering your people to do that, developing them. Now, let's talk about your, your leadership development because um, in our back and forth and the research, uh, and you mentioned earlier, you're like, I have the perfect degree for lo- for logistics. Is it English, not necessarily supply chain oriented or in leadership? And I would love, and I want to hear from you outside of so with no formal leadership training at this point where have you sought or or found the best ways to develop yourself as a leader i mean it was my my mentors um both inside the organization that i work for at ch robinson and currently here at nfi as well as my what i used to call my personal board of directors Mm -hmm, which was mm -hmm. this group of mentors mentors that i was so lucky to have i mean my father Mm -hmm who's run successful businesses for a majority of his professional career, the original founder of American Backhaulers. His name's Paul Loeb. Paul is sort of like the godfather of the freight brokerage industry. And he's just this this sage individual who gives off tremendous wisdom, looks at the world a a very different way, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. A very, uh, the interesting combination of conservatism and aggressiveness combined. It's this, I know those Mm -hmm. are, that's an oxymoron, but it's- What is that? Um. He knows exactly what he wants. And when he sees it, he goes after it really, really aggressively. And if it's not something right in that wheelhouse, he's extremely conservative about it. Mm. And it's more about the knowing what's important for you than it is about the aggressiveness of the conservatism. Mm. It's more about, well, what are you trying to get to? What's the reason for doing that? Why would you think that's an issue? Like just very thoughtful in that way. So Mm -hmm. I've always used that. And then you know, look, the the industry that we're in really is embraced from day one. The apprenticeship model is what I call it. And that's this idea of you work along some uh, alongside somebody. It's not all that different than trading, really. Somebody has a desk, right? They have a portfolio of customers you're moving freight for, and you work on their freight with them and you help move it and you help quote it and you help manage it. 
And by proxy, you're being apprenticed into the next role. And that continues on in your career. And that apprenticeship mentality offered me 30 to 50 peers that were within two to five years experience of me that I could use as a model to develop myself. And so I am a combination of three or four people that I found most valuable to me. And one, and you know, my original boss, Kevin Sherwood, was the one of the best relationship developers I've ever met in my entire life. And he showed me out of the gate that building relationships can be really fun if you're actually interested. Mm. And in the end, like he had the best relationships with his customers. And it wasn't because he was the smartest guy. It wasn't because he was the most affable guy because he was genuinely interested in learning about them, about what they did, about their business. So those are the things that I've used over time, like taking the best parts of other people and then making my own. And then again, the the real, what's at the bottom of all of it has been, I've always worked for organizations that have allowed for a certain amount of entrepreneurial spirit. Meaning mm-hmm. you had a, it's the old analogy of there's no pictures on the scorecard, the golf scorecard, right? You and I could be playing golf. We could both mark a four on the card, but you might've bounced it off a tree into a trap and chipped in. And I might've put it down the fairway, missed my shot on the green and made a crazy two putt, but nobody knows by looking at the scorecard. In the end, our goals have always been about you know, getting to the result you're looking for, which is a successful delivery of a load or the successful implementation of a program or the successful development of a tool, a software tool. But in the end, as long as we get to that end result, there hasn't been a ton of rigor around how to get there. There's a lot of flexibility allowed inside and latitude allowed inside of that. And that allowed for a lot of opportunity to develop your own skills and your own way to create that end result. Mm-hmm. And then I think the, the last thing I would say is when you actually drop into the seat, and I don't know if I've ever said this out loud. So if my boss, ha- my our CEO happens to listen to this, he'll, he'll find this pretty interesting. So I, I quit working at Robinson and took this job to come to NFI. Family and I moved to Philadelphia from Chicago for the job. It was the opportunity to build a business in my own sort of model, in my own way, taking what I'd learned. But in that drive from Chicago to Philly, I did by myself because my wife and kids stayed behind for 10 weeks. I I wasn't panicked, but I was certainly like, what the hell did I get myself into? <laughs> Trying to build this business from scratch. Where in the heck? And I had a business plan and I knew what I was, but it was still this thought in the back of your mind, like, I just ripped up a really good career at a company that I enjoyed working at to go hit the reset button. Holy crap. And (laughs) when you think about the challenges that you put in front of yourself, you don't realize what you actually have in you to succeed in doing those things until you go to do them. And what I hadn't realized was how much of this authentic leadership style that I espouse today, if you need to put a brand on it, came from the world that I grew up in. And our and that person, Paul Loeb, that I mentioned, he's the most authentic leader that I've ever met in my entire life. And I don't mean that necessarily in a 100% a positive way because everybody's got their foibles and the things that cause them to be who they are. And not everybody works for everybody. But being real and being transparent and being honest and being one of the people and having done the job that these people do and never being willing to ask somebody to do something that you wouldn't do yourself, 
That's at the bottom of all the things that I learned growing up in this business. And when it came time for me to define that for myself, it all just came out. I didn't, I didn't go read a bunch of leadership books. I didn't try to find the style that defines me. We just went and it happened by, and then it got shaped continuously in my role here at NFI through my peers and our CEO, who has become a wonderful mentor of mine here as well, who himself and his brothers have taken a a billion dollar company and turned it into a $4 billion company in 20 years. And they, you know, are also developing themselves as they go. So it's just been been one big learning experience. And it's been uh, just a tremendous, in my opinion, it's a, it's a great way to highlight how much you can pick up from the people that you work with every single day. Wow. Okay. Great. I love that passion. By the way, you can just hear it coming through. Um, and there's only one place where you get that. And that is when it's coming from within. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Um, one of the things that really stuck out to me is for people to remember, and you know, we, we've had a lot of Harvard MBAs on the show and you know Princeton and Stanford. And those are, I think they're, learning experiences are, are great, right? It's really helped them. And they talk about that, but you really highlight that there's not just one way to leadership, right? There is, there are classes, uh, but there are books, there are podcasts like this one. There are, there's mentoring. So learning from other leaders and so you, you highlighted that one very well, but also leadership by doing, or someone said one time to me, leadership's a contact sport or, and then, <laughs> and the way they started it out, Ben, they're like, uh, and, uh, they said, Ben, have you ever noticed there are millions of leadership books on Amazon yet? There are so few leaders. And I was like, Whoa, stop. I guess, <laughs> I guess there's a point there. You can read about it, but you got to do it. And doing it is not easy. Either you have this, this urge to go put yourself in challenging situations or you get drawn into it even unwillingly and you get the opportunity. <laughs> then you, yeah. then you learn about it. Um, yep. a couple of things I want to, a couple of things I want to unpack with you. Um, the first one is, so you highlighted mentoring as being a really Im- important, leadership development tool that you rely upon. And you mentioned some of those mentors. What does a great mentoring session look like from your perspective? It's a great question. Uh, and, and I'm so passionate about mentoring that I've actually created a peer mentoring program inside of my division at my company that's now being co-opted across our organization, knowing that how much value it creates and just shared understanding. But I really, I think the the key attributes that we talk about all the time as a part of our our program is one, you have to be committed to the program. And so that means you you have to set aside time to specifically do mentoring. And that I that by that I mean you cannot do your email while you're talking to a mentee. You cannot be looking at your stock picks while you're talking to your mentee. You need to give your full time and attention to that individual. But in exchange for that, 
what the mentee really needs to be bringing to the table is condensed, some sort of formatted ideas about what they'd like to talk about. Mm -hmm. And that's with some foresight, right? So that those thoughts need to be shared with the mentor ahead of the call to give Mm -hmm. the mentor time to to gather their thoughts before they actually get onto the mentoring session. Because valuable insights don't always come from spontaneous conversation. Sometimes that person needs to think about things that happen. And then and then one of the other things I think is really important is experience sharing instead of advice giving. So this is something I took from my YPO world. Uh, and I've been a member now of YPO for four years. And, and inside of that, I truly now have an actual personal board of directors in my YPO forum and my brothers from YPO that that I get together with every single month for four plus hours and then, you know, untold hours outside of is there's, that's one of the rules of YPO is there's no advice giving only experience sharing. And when you learn from experiences by hearing other people having gone through the, what they feel is a similar situation, you get real outcomes. You get concepts that you can consider instead of a, Oh, you should fight this problem by doing this, this, and this. Well, that may not work for my leadership style. But in the end, if I know that when you dealt with a problem like that, you did this and this, and the outcome was that, I can at least take from that, okay, well, this person's a little bit more pragmatic than I am, and they do this. I'm a little bit more like this. So I'm going to go a different way, but I'm looking for that same outcome. And sometimes just having the outcome is a really valuable aspect of figuring out the solution to the problem. Yes. And it does lend more credibility to the advice or the person or perspective. If you're like, okay, that, that worked for a $20 billion company, but does that work for my company or it worked for a hundred person company, something relatable. I mean, I think that's, that's so important. Um, the thing you mentioned was learning from your experiences and you mentioned uh, that the early days in your current role and what, you know, kind of that baptism by fire, here we are, let's, let's go. Um, I find for myself and, and for many of my clients too, sometimes it's hard to learn in the moment because you're just so engaged with what you're doing and getting through it and figuring it out. It's hard to, to think, okay, what am I taking away? There's a process sometimes that happens maybe after the fact. What is your what is your process or periodic process for considering what happened and what you learned and, and developing something that's actually useful for your leadership development there? Yeah, so a couple of different ways that I really consider. One, I turn it over in my head about 150,000 times over the course of the next three to six <laughs> months, depending how how big a doozy it is. Because make no mistake, right? It, make mistakes all the time, right? And I, I truly believe if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. Uh, you, there's just no way to be perfect. And everybody thinks that that's the case when they look at the track record when it's all said and done but they don't see all the little mistakes along the way that led to the successful end result. So one is just like being conscious of it. And, Mm -hmm. and honestly being able to let go of that is also a big part of it as well, as far as like the way that you Mm -hmm. internalize it, because I used to be the kind of person that would beat myself up for a long time after the fact, after making a mistake. 
And I found that there's no power in that, right? The power is in letting it mm. go and figuring out how to not do it again. And that is mm. my biggest thing. Is you make one, make the mistake once, you know what? That's what it is. Make the same, make that same mistake again, then shame on you because you you could have learned from that. Mm. And so then the second part of it is really externalizing that. So I tend to learn from our mistakes, you know, um, business-wise specifically by ending up finding the solution or some way of, of positioning it where it benefits our individuals. I'll use our internal uh, a blog inside of our division. We've got a company blog that I use and I will write it out. I mean, again, my English literature degree just keeps shining back through, but I do write a good amount about our initiatives, mm-hmm. about our goals, about our focus, about shared learnings, about things that we want to try to do better. And I'll share that with the team in a way that it may not come out to them as like, hey, I'm cathartically kind of letting myself like espouse my feelings outward and like that it's good for me. But typically writing about these things is a way for me to to help kind of cement my thoughts in place, having already ingested the things that I felt like I needed to tweak in order to get it right. Uh, and you know, I will say that this getting on this podcast and just preparing myself for it a little bit kind of put me in a position where I, last week I ended up publishing something on our blog about our culture. And I don't often write about our culture. Um, it's this unspoken thing. I do feel like our organization specifically has a tremendous family-oriented culture and a, a get-it-done-no-matter-what sort of culture. But at the bottom of that, there's this really great concept of API, assume positive intent. And we have this this rule of we don't hire jerks. We actually use a different word, but I'll spare the crass language for the audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, We refuse to because there are they do exist in our industry, but because we don't want to work with bad people. And as a result, uh, we have this culture of people that I think generally like working with each other. And like coming to work every day and know they can rely on their peers to help pick them up if they need help or to help support them if they've got an issue. And and in the end, putting that culture down on paper is something I've never done before, partially because I don't know that I never ever wanted to put a finger on it and define it for everybody. But I also realized in thinking about that, that I hadn't ever put it down on paper for anybody before. And that maybe there was some power in doing that. And so last week, I finally did it uh, in part to just sort of, con- you know, cement into my head the way that I think about how we go to market and what our culture is and how we continue to to grow without losing sight of what's gotten us here. Fantastic examples there, Tom Pack. Number one, it really resonated with me. Uh, how do you learn from your experience? Well, number one, you think about it. Now, maybe not 150,000 times, like you mentioned, but be willing be willing to think about uh, think about it versus just blocking it out. And then two, uh, it was really cool. You said, hey, I'm going ext- to put that problem outside of me. So I'm going to take an analytical uh, approach versus a really emotionally driven, like, oh my gosh, it's triggering shame or fear, or you know, I'm going to really try to put that out there in a neutral way so I can evaluate it and then be willing down to write your th- willing to write your thoughts down uh, about it. And it, I'm in a very similar boat where I don't necessarily know what I really think about something unless I've written it down 
Or nowadays, a lot of times I'll make a video, which I found doing videos for me is, I don't know why it's, it seems to be faster and easier, but for an English major, you can probably bang out a lot more words faster than I can do a video. But I mean, I don't know about you, but like when I, when I even am willing to write it down, it does crystallize something. I'm like, oh, that's what I think about that. How do you find that to be the case? My, some of my peers and employees joke that I carry my little Bible around with me. I have this little journal that I always have, and it Uh takes me two or three years to go through a journal. So it's not, I'm not, it's not a to-do list per se, but it's just, sometimes it's things I need to do. Like, you know, remember to get the pool closed up for the winter or whatever, but most of the time it's thoughts and it's, you know, what would this look like? Or what would happen if we did that? Or you need to write a blog about this, et cetera, et cetera. But that's another way that I sort of lock these things in to just remind myself. And sometimes I'll move the same thought over three, four, five times to the next set of pages and some and won't strike them out. And sometimes I won't do anything with it. I'll strike it out and decide I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna act on that thought, or it's not a part of what we're doing right now. But it's just this way of constantly mm-hmm. reminding myself the things I want to keep in front of me, both from an initiatives and a philosophical, like strategic business uh, development approach. Well, and so you're committed to physically writing versus typing on your phone. To be, I'm not a masochist like that in the purest form. And if I'm writing a blog, it's happening in a Google doc or whatever, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm typing it. And, and ironically, it's most of the time I write blogs when I don't have Wi-Fi. I get on a plane, I travel a lot. Yeah. Plane's Wi-Fi doesn't work. I pull up a Word document and I just start blasting it out. And mm. it's that initial version. The V1 nobody ever sees is the what my thoughts are. What they inevitably see is what's refined for the for the group to consume. But that first version of it, to your point, is really like sort of me getting it out mm. and and thinking about that out loud. And there's something about it for me when I put it in writing it is substantially more real than if it's just bouncing around in my head. It really good. And I was going to ask you, well, for leaders who aren't writing and most, the majority are not, what's the first step. And it sounds like you just said it, which is just get started, write it like a personal journal entry, right? Right. Yes. Just get it out. And then once you get it out, you can make the call. If you use one sentence, a paragraph, you know, a, a couple pages or nothing. But if you don't take that first step, you don't get to do all the other p- pieces. Uh, and I think, yep. I think having the courage to get it onto paper and make the time is, is where it all starts. And it doesn't have to be a tremendous amount of time. I mean, I, my COVID investment in me was trying to get my sleeping under control. I'm not a, and as I mentioned, I get these things, they roll around in my head. My brain gets going at 3 a.m. and I'm a hot mess, not sleeping. And so I really worked hard on trying to get control of that. I mean, the the sleep doctor calls it anxiety. I don't feel anxious. I'm not like waking up in cold sweats, but it 100% is these thoughts that are running around in my Mm -hmm. head at 3 a.m. And so how to get some of that out. One of the things she suggested that I I did start doing and it worked for a time was journaling, writing down. Because right when you lay in bed, I don't know why it is, but I know a lot of people are the same way. That's when I get these things I either forgot to do or the things I want to remember that I need to do, or whatever. And so now I just pick up my phone. I've got a notepad on my phone. 
I'll just type those couple of things in. I might even pull my phone up three or four times. My wife no longer questions what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> Going back to my phone three or four times after we yeah. turn the lights out. But it, it is a way for me to get it out of my head and into a place where I know I can come back to it and know what it is that I wanted to think about without having to worry about remembering it. And for me, that has been a just a huge shift in the quality of my sleep, along with uh, some other things. But that's the biggest one was just getting it out of my head because you can't keep everything up there. One of the greatest life hacks of all times, uh, of all time, I think you just mentioned it right there. Uh, and I have that same experience where I wake up in the middle of the night with just ideas that I'm like, well, I need to keep thinking about it because I don't want to forget it. So when I wake up in three hours, I can act on it. And then I wake up and I forget it. And it's just not a very pleasant experience. So like you, it was recommended to me, Ben, get this out of your head and onto paper or onto a phone. And I actually done a lot of research behind why our brains work this way. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Zygarnik effect. Have you heard of mm-hmm. that? Uh, well, no. just really quickly, there's this a Lithuanian psychologist from like the twenties or forties, Bluma Zygarnik. And she noticed in these restaurants that, that she was in where these waiters would, they would go to the table and they would get everybody's order. Uh, they would not write it down. They would just, and they would remember the orders and take them back to the kitchen, verbally relay into the kitchen. They would work on them. And then they would get all these plates and take it back. And they would remember perfectly where to put down the plates. So they were remembering this. But then after she interviewed them, she noticed that after they put the plates down, they couldn't remember. And and, and she calls about, she she refers to it as each open order was an open loop. And having an open loop, our brains are very much geared towards keeping that loop open for an extended period of time. But if we have more than, I think she said, three open loops at one time, it creates tension or it creates anxiety mm-hmm. in our brain. And so writing them down, even if we haven't done them, allows us to add some closure to it and frees up our mental capacity to maybe go have sweet dreams <laughs> or think about something or just asleep, Or just to sleep. <laughs> yeah, just to get a good night's rest. One of the things yeah. too that that I found because I've had the same experience where I would want to write it down, and I didn't want to wake my wife up. And so what I did was I got these pilot pens. Have you seen those that the pilots yep. using the cockpits? You may have one. Yeah, no. Shoots out a little. No. It's like a little flashlight shoots out. Yeah. You can, you Thankfully, can my down. wife sleeps like the dead. So once she's asleep, <laughs> okay, well, I that's could. Good. I could get up and I could go clean the garage and she wouldn't even know uh, most of the time. So oh. what a great I'm lucky that way. But I, and, and I got, by the way, I've got a lot more questions. We don't have enough time. So maybe I'll have to do right. do a second one here, but I wanted to sort of open it up to you right now as we wrap up. What is your parting thought for our listeners today? I, you know, I think there's just, there's so much value in being yourself and finding that right version of you that makes sense. There, so to your point, a million leadership books and more talking heads on leadership than ever, with lots of space time on LinkedIn, etc. And in the end, there is not a single one of them that will solve everybody's problem. It's a combination of different things and tools and skills. And look, there are a lot of them are learned. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I've I've done a ton around EQ spent a ton of time learning about emotional intelligence and empathy 
because that was not something I failed at doing, but it was something I channeled too aggressively. And so like Hmm. learning how to meter that the right way, learning that every employee is different and managing people and leading people, you know, the same way across a group of individuals isn't going to feel good for the individuals or you. Hmm. And, and then the other thing that I think that people miss all the time and in our industry, the thing that makes you really good at your job as an operator, individual contributor in our business is a sense of urgency. And you mentioned that earlier, your hair needs to be on fire every day. You're solving problems. That is what you're doing in logistics. It's the, exact opposite as a leader. Hmm. And so as you move from your individual contributor roles and you're starting to become a leader and you're starting to learn that, take a step back and ask yourself, what made me good at this job that I don't need to bring with me to this job? And so as an operator, the thing that I didn't need to do was go running after that HR problem like it was a truck that was broken down on the side of the highway. Because the truth of the matter is that HR problem was still going to be there tomorrow and probably will be better solved tomorrow after a consistent amount of thought and maybe some introspection on how to solve that problem in a meaningful way for the employee and the employer. But treating it and running after it like a broker and trying to fix it was the last thing I needed to do for the right resolution for everybody involved. And so that idea of, of, go slow to go fast. It's a, you know, it's a phrase people use out there is like really understand that like what got you there won't get you any further. And you need to find that right thing. That's going to get you to the next step. And you may not always have the answers, but it's definitely not always rooted in what got you to where you are. Well, a great place to start or to end, to wrap up on that. I'll say to start to put the cherry on top and you just did. (laughs) Dave, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate it. A great conversation. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.